President Biden visits the G7 and NATO to reaffirm America's support for Europe. Welcome everyone to episode number 22. I am your host, Matt Parker. Today we're going to be discussing the benefits and drawbacks of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, also known as NATO. And we're also going to discuss the strategic challenges that are being posed by countries such as China, Russia, and as well a fellow NATO member country. And lastly, we're going to conclude with today's episode as always with our most likeliest and most dangerous courses of action. But before we jump into it, let's take just a short ad break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. So a couple of descriptions and definitions of a few of these organizations, if you're not so familiar. First with the G7. The G7 is just an informal grouping. Uh, these are seven of the world's most advanced economies. So Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, United Kingdom, European Union, and of course the United States of America. And recently, President Biden went over to Europe to visit with the G7, and as well as he visited NATO headquarters, which is in Brussels, uh, where he was there to reassure NATO leadership of America's commitment to alliances and the future engagement between the U.S. and NATO. This is what led me to creating tonight's episode, was to give our listeners some context of what NATO is, what its purpose is, what it has been since its founding in the late 1940s, and moving forward, what we can expect from it. So first, what Biden said whenever he was in uh, NATO headquarters visiting and reassuring that confidence in our American support to Europe was the following. President Biden said, I want to make it clear, NATO is critically important for U.S. interest in and of itself. If there weren't one, We'd have to invent one. And he said that shortly after visiting with the NATO, NATO Secretary General. Quote, I just want all of Europe to know the United States is there. Now, I think President Biden went and said these specific words because President Trump had a very um, kind of a conflict head-to-head attack mode when it came to NATO's leadership as well as European defense of itself. And this is what really the striking balance between the two individuals and their leadership styles is Trump says things bluntly, directly. Uh, you could all certainly argue not diplomatically. And President Biden has another leadership style entirely, more soft-spoken, uh, definitely a consensus-building mentality. And this is kind of the separation of the political right and left. Uh, that being said, President Biden does, uh, and President Trump have their own unique presentation styles. And so with Four years of Trump and his kind of more bombastic style, President Biden went over to Europe to reaffirm that America is, in fact, believer in the alliances that have been around for so many years. And so this kind of brings us to, okay, what is NATO? Why does it exist? First of all, NATO was founded in 1949. Originally, it was meant to protect Europe against the Soviet Union attacks during the Cold War. Now, it has come to represent that underlying partnership between North America and Europe. And that partnership is based upon just a shared political and economic values. And more importantly, a key part of the alliance is a pledge of collective defense. One of the only articles that you ever would want to really remember about the NATO treaty is Article 5. That article specifies that collectively these member countries of NATO will stand side by side to defend one another. 
If one NATO member is attacked, it's considered attack upon, uh, upon all these member countries. So collective defense is really founded on that principle that NATO views itself as a, a, a big body of these individual members. And you, for example, like when terrorists attacked the United States in 9-11, uh, 2001, then NATO allies stood with America as though they had been attacked themselves. And that's really how we've seen it. NATO as an organization evolve when you look at its modern function. NATO's role since kind of the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 90s, it's really expanded. It's gone to including, if you remember, the bombing of the Serb forces during the Bosnia and Kosovo Wars. That was in the 90s. Later on, the enforcing an, an arms embargo on Libya in 2011. Certainly with the inflow of Middle Eastern refugees, NATO has stood by Europe to help with uh, that issue since it erupted in 2015. And more recently, even stepping up against uh, for cyber defense. Now, when we think about the criticisms and the benefits and drawbacks of NATO, we kind of have to look at this holistically. I want to present two different perspectives, the American political left and the American political right, on how they view NATO as an organization. But real briefly, keep this in mind when we're talking about relationships between partner countries and alliances is a more of a broad term. I'll give you a quote from Winston Churchill. He once said, there's only one thing worse than fighting with allies, and that is fighting without them. And what he's getting at is it's hard to have different cultures, different languages come together and agree upon, especially in a course of action, in a military conflict. You know, the U.S., for example, maintains and cultivates relationships through a whole host of activities. But relationships are difficult to maintain between you know, nation states, and sometimes you get dragged into things that you just don't want to as a policymaker. And at times there are friction points and alliances that, that will make those relationships collapse. So let's highlight a few benefits of NATO now that we understand what its original purpose was and how it's developed and modernized over the years. According to Jim, Jim Garamone, writing for Department of Defense News, after the Berlin Wall came down and the Soviet Union dissolved, Former Warsaw Pact and Baltic nations joined the alliance. Nations in the Balkans and others aspired to join. And that led to democratic values being spread throughout countries, formerly under a communist regime. And Garamon writes, NATO allies are a boost to American military power. The Europeans have nearly 2 million active duty service members with cutting edge capabilities. The European allies are on duty in Africa have been on duty in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria. They work with the United States in counter-piracy operations and in maintaining sea lines of communications and the airways. A classic example is the U.S. Africa Command. It's based actually in Germany, as well as the U.S. 6th Naval Fleet. It's based in Naples, Italy. When you think of the troops that have been American troops, that have been wounded in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, they're flown to Germany for treatment, for more you know, advanced surgeries. So that relationship between these NATO countries and the United States, it has a lot of benefits in the modern context, especially in counterterrorism. And in fact, since after 9-11, when Article 5 of the, the treaty was uh, uh, utilized, since that time, hundreds, uh, thousands of European and Canadian soldiers, they fought a lot, right alongside 
United States in Afghanistan. Uh, NATO continues to be a, a relevant and an effective force in Afghanistan and certainly during the defeat of an ISIS coalition and deterring Russia for that matter. Now, our allies in NATO, they've bared the same cost as our own veterans in the wars against Islamic terrorism. The, the engagement in the U.S. has gone beyond the battlefields we're actively fighting on today. And as an organization, NATO members, they operate alongside each other in, a, in order to deter future geopolitical conflicts. And I'll give you a further example. According to Lindsey Ford and James Golger from Brookings Institute, on a daily basis, the U.S. and its allies share intelligence. They train and exercise alongside each other, operate common weapon systems, creating combined capabilities that far exceed any force the U.S. could just wield on its own. America's allies have fought alongside the U.S. in every significant military conflict since World War II. So the benefits the U.S. accrues from its alliances stretch far beyond the military domain. America's allies provide support for U.S. political priorities. You think about sanctioning Iran or North Korea's illicit weapons programs providing financial support for reconstruction efforts in Iraq or Afghanistan. You know, allies such as Japan are working together with U.S. to advance fair and transparent international standards on issues such as digital governance and cybersecurity. And within the G7, U.S. allies have coordinated the, to address issues, ranging from the global refugee crisis, international health standards, education, and women for children. It's really wide-ranging. Now, there are certainly some drawbacks. You know, Trump made, Trump made NATO a talking point. I don't know how many Americans thought, even on a monthly basis, about the organization of NATO. But he pointed out something that was, that was obvious. Member countries all committed to spending 10% of their GDP on defense. However, these member countries of NATO were not meeting that, with the exception of a couple. They weren't meeting that 2% uh, commitment. And the U.S. is the largest donor to NATO's budget. And so Trump wanted other countries to pull their weight. In my view, he's not wrong, wasn't wrong about expecting that. I think it's fair to say that you know, Trump is a kind of a complicated person in some aspects, while in others he's almost transparent. So on the issue of funding NATO, an organization designed to push back against the Soviet Union, which no longer exists, Trump wants to know, you know what's in it for America. You know, why do we need to protect European countries from an enemy who no longer exists in the form it did you know, 56 years ago? Now, that might be a simplistic approach to the question of defense budgets and alliances, but you know, really Trump pushed NATO to answer the question, what is our mission? You know, what is our purpose? And I think it's a terrific question to address and articulate because in my view, NATO serves a purpose and it can grow that purpose moving forward. You know, Trump forced countries out of complacency. Naturally, these countries didn't like Trump's approach, which is fair in my estimate. He isn't exactly the most diplomatic at times. He's kind of impulsive. But his method did prove effective. The French president, for example, his Emmanuel Macron, he later said that Europe needed to take greater ownership of its own defense. He was worried that Europe wasn't going to be able to rely on the U.S. for its defense needs. And according to Lawfare, this year, 10 NATO countries all have projected to spend 2% of their GDP on defense expenditures. You know, Most notably, France. It's going to spend over 2% of its GDP on defense for the first time since 2014 when it actually pledged to that 2% goal. And while these countries' decisions to increase spending are not exclusively the result of Trump's pressure, 
his efforts have contributed to the alliance and that Biden's going to inherit. So if you're an American citizen, whether it's that political right or the political left, you know, it's quite possible you never give NATO a, a great deal of thought. And that's something I perfectly understand. You know, NATO and its operations may make headlines occasionally, but it's hard to see the impact of an organization when it's, you know, not right in front of your face. So I want to break down more specifically the criticisms of NATO from both the American and the American political right and that political left perspective, just to kind of put in your mind whether either side kind of lies on the issue. And I'm, I'm speaking generally, kind of broad terms here, when we break down two different perspectives on NATO issue, what we really get to evaluate is a political philosophy of both human nature and human conflict. So, according to Adrian Bonnenberger, he's writing for Wrath-Bearing Tree, conservative NATO skeptics tend to bring two types of criticism against the organization. The first draws on the skepticism over globalization and alliance. And it's not unlike you know, the, quote, state's rights argument one often encounters among that type of conservative thinker. These people view NATO membership as a concession of U.S. sovereignty and agency. You know, taking part in a mutual defense pact means that the U.S. having to defend other countries in ways that run contrary to its own interest. The U.S. loses more than its gains from a military alliance with Europe. The second describes the problem in financial terms. The U.S. cannot afford to spend the money it does on NATO. That money would be better spent almost anywhere. The second source of concern is similar to the first in that it assumes that the U.S. is somehow being cheated by participating in the alliance. You know, cheated out of sovereignty or cheated out of agency or money. Now you compare that. NATO skeptics on the American left, they're less concerned about advancing U.S. interest and more interested in expanding a world where people can live free from war. To this type of thinking, the U.S. is itself a source of much or dominant piece of aggression in the world. And as NATO is subservient to U.S. influence, it should be diminished. The hypothesis here is that a smaller or a non-existent NATO would inevitably lead to a more peaceful world. People tend to live harmoniously with one another, much more so than nations, and reducing any nation-state agency is to the good. And this type of thinking, it also leads people to advocate for or the reduction or the outright destruction of all nuclear weapons. From that point of view, the humanist or the humanitarian, the stronger and larger NATO is, and the more likely war becomes. So now that we've evaluated those arguments for and against of NATO, let's dig in a bit to the adversaries of NATO and the future obstacles that NATO may face while executing its mission moving forward. You know, when Biden visited with other leading members of NATO, the organization addressed concerns of two aggressive states, Russia and China. And certainly a couple of things were said by the organization as a whole uh, against both these countries, just to make some lines clear that where the organization stands as a, as, as a unit, as an organization. And they're just highlighting the threats presented by Russia and the challenges posed by China, you know, citing that Russia's aggressive actions constitute a threat to Euro-Atlantic security. And China's growing influence and the international policies can present challenges that the member states need to address as an alliance as whole. And certainly Biden said he's going to make some clear red lines 
whenever he spoke to Putin before their summit, quote, I'm going to make clear to President Putin that there are areas where we can cooperate if he chooses. And if he chooses not to cooperate and acts in a way that he has in the past relative to cybersecurity and some other activities, then we will respond. We will respond in kind, as President Biden. And twofold, the Secretary General of NATO, Jen Stolzenberger, said the military alliance didn't want a Cold War with China. Stoltenberg told reporters, quote, we're not entering a new Cold War with China, and China is not our adversary. It's not our enemy. We need to address together as an alliance the challenges that the rise of China poses to our security. So semi-strong comments by both leaders, one of you know, the United States and NATO, trying to toe the line a little bit and not jump right head into more Trump-style fashion saying, you know, calling out whether it's Kim Jong-un, Little Rocket Man, or saying, you know, we'll totally obliviate your country from the face of the earth. No, they're kind of taking this a little more diplomatically, saying, look, we're not, we're not enemies, we don't have to fight each other, but, you know, we need to all basically play the game by the same rules. That's more or less what they're getting at in my assessment. So... With that kind of context and understanding NATO's original purpose, as well as the current discussion of both China and Russia, let's answer the following questions here. One, can NATO take on China in a military conflict? And two, what is the current NATO capability to push back against Russia? Let's let's first of all start with China. You know, according to Thomas de Mazer and Wes Mitchell, writing for Foreign Policy, they write that just because China is an Asian power doesn't mean that its activities lie outside the scope of Western alliance. And it's true that NATO's Article 5, Guarantee of Mutual Assistance in the Event of a Military Attack, only applies to the Euro-Atlantic area north of the Tropic of Cancer. But China is already active in this exactly this geographic area in ways that profoundly affect the Allies' security. China's control of a growing portion of critical European infrastructure, from telecommunication networks to port facilities, directly affects NATO readiness, interoperability, and secure communications. In China's presence, it's not just commercial. Through its military-civil fusion strategy, which aims to systematically harness technology for military aims, Beijing is extracting private sector technology and talent from NATO member states for use by Chinese, now China's People's Liberation Army. Chinese military ships and planes are increasingly active in the eastern Mediterranean, northern Atlantic, and Antarctic Ocean. Now, at the same time, China is waging aggressive and increasingly sophisticated information campaigns to influence NATO members' populations and opinion makers and divide the alliance from within. So if anyone thinks that ignoring these and other obvious security dimensions of China's activity will make their society safer or richer, they are mistaken. As Chinese behavior toward a growing list of countries in Europe and elsewhere shows, Beijing's preferred strategy for expanding global influence is to bring its immense power and wealth to bear against smaller, isolated states. The greater the asymmetry in power, the better from Beijing's perspective. The more Western countries can jointly advance their interests, therefore, the better equipped they will be by offsetting that asymmetry. So it may kind of come surprise that there is actually no NATO-China strategy 
And there's no mechanism for defending allies against Chinese challenges to their security. The scope for NATO to do more on China is considerable and it's underdeveloped. Even though China comes up more and more in internal NATO processes and committee work, it may kind of come as a surprise that there isn't at present a NATO strategy and there's no regular working group or a body focused on China within the alliance. There's no designated mechanism for defending allies against Beijing's military civil fusion program or other Chinese challenges to NATO security. So, with that being said, a lot of preparations to be made regarding China. So let's pivot to Russia here and take a look. Now, in the fall of 2020, there was a war game conducted by NATO, and they were assessing how well would NATO turn out in a conflict versus Russia. Now, after conducting an exhaustive series of war games where the red was Russia and blue was NATO forces, they engaged in a wide range of war scenarios just over the Baltic states. So think about Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, for example. Okay. The Rand Corporation, which is a defense think tank, they did a study and they called it reinforcing deterrence on NATO's eastern flank. That study determined that a successful NATO defense of the region it would require a much larger air ground force than what's currently deployed. And the study maintains that without a deterrent size of at least seven brigades, fire, and air support protecting Eastern Europe, Russia could overrun the Baltic states in as quickly as 60 hours. 6-0. Now, a rapid assault to the Baltic region would leave NATO with a very few attractive options. That includes a massive, risky counterattack, threatening a nuclear weapons option, or just simply allowing the Russia to annex the countries, which I doubt would be very popular in those Baltic states. So in my view, the Russians, they've positioned their forces to do, at the very least, deter a NATO alliance. You know, if you look at the just a topographical map, but featuring Russia and Eastern Europe, you're not going to notice that there's any massive natural border that separates these two regions. There's no... Uh, north by south mountain range that separates Russia, giving it that physical border between Eastern Europe. So Russia's pushed against with the West. It's really about geography more than ideology. And Putin believes he's got to maintain or at least enhance a buffer between Russia and the West. And he does this by influencing weaker Eastern European countries and also presenting his military forces as ready to engage against NATO units in Eastern Europe. So the last country I'm going to dive into as an adversary to NATO actually might surprise you because it's, in fact, a member of NATO. Turkey has emerged as an increasingly assertive military actor, and that's both in its near and abroad and has pursued foreign policy goals that at times were at, certainly at odds with NATO alliance. So I'm going to spell out just a very short timeline and a number of events that have created a tension between Turkey and its fellow member states. According to Lawfare, since 2016, Turkey has begun to assert its military independence. So Turkish President Erdogan, his actions have included intervention in Syria in opposition to coalition-backed Kurdish forces fighting against the Islamic State, the purchase and testing of Russian S-400 air defense system at the risk of exposing NATO air defense technology to Moscow, his support for Turkish right to develop nuclear weapons, the deployment of naval assets in the eastern Mediterranean, ag agitating Greece, 
which is a fellow NATO member. And most recently, his support of Azerbaijan's recent military campaign against Armenia. Now, Erdogan has made all of these moves while at times obstructing NATO's consensus-based decision-making process and enacting anti-democratic reforms domestically. What do these actions mean for the alliance? Turkey may no longer feel constrained to align its foreign and security policies with NATO and is beginning to carve out its own distinct security interests. And I'm bringing up Turkey not only because of their recent unpopular actions, but more so because of what it brings to the alliance. The Turkish Armed Forces, it's the second largest standing military force in NATO after the United States. It's got an estimated, as of 2015, about 640,000 military, civilian, and paramilitary personnel. And it provides a substantial addition in NATO's military capabilities. So, what's next for the alliance in Turkey? And according to the Center of Strategic and International Studies, presently, excuse me, presently, mutual mistrust is so that high that many allies are questioning whether Turkey still shares NATO's interests and values. And many in Turkey are struggling to see the benefits of NATO's membership or a renewed European Union accession process. And both sides seem to have forgotten that the historical ties and shared interest that led Turkey to join NATO in 1952. And that was to counter you know, Russian, which was then Soviet Union, influence in Central Asia and the Middle East and maintaining stability in the Middle East. Yet those foundational factors still remain valid. You know, Turkey's geopolitical position at the crossroads of you know, Europe, Asia, Africa, it still provides NATO with a needed political and operational reach. And Turkey continues to benefit from the collective military power of NATO. With the relationship you know, close to, if not at its lowest point, Turkey and NATO with the support of the EU need to take active measures just to anchor it for the future while you know, avoiding steps that could destroy the relationship entirely. So let's move into the final piece of the episode with our most likeliest and most dangerous courses of action. In my assessment for the most likeliest course of action regarding NATO, I believe NATO will most likely place more emphasis on the growing threat of China. It will enhance its own international, or I should say, internal consensus about areas NATO can influence and challenge China's growing power. Now, as concerned with Russia, NATO will attempt to strengthen the relationships it has in Eastern Europe and harmonize efforts between member states to fight more effectively in the cyber domain. And lastly, Turkey will challenge NATO's interests in maintaining the relationship so long as Turkey agitates fellow members of the alliance. And for the most dangerous course of action, in my assessment, if NATO fails to communicate its mission clearly and boggles itself down in a self-made bureaucratic red tape, it's the worst thing it could do. It would become weak and fractured, just as multiple members would push and pull for influence in decision-making. Therefore, it would create an incompetent NATO, allowing the relationship between countries like Russia and China and potentially Turkey to strengthen, which is the last thing the organization wants. In my view, the NATO, NATO really needs to do the following, as I see it. Europe needs to enhance its own military capabilities and especially the cyber domain. NATO needs to clearly state that it would support the U.S. against China through political, economic, military means. 
you know, just should conflict break out between the two countries. And lastly, NATO member countries have to stop future Chinese investments in their country's more strategic parts of their economy. Think about like telecommunications or specific infrastructure that a country really depends on. So let's close this out just with a brief recap for this episode. Biden visited NATO to reaffirm the United States' commitment to the alliance. Both the American political left and political right have arguments against the existence of NATO. You know, leading member countries are concerned about the aggressive efforts taken on by Russia and China. And Turkey is presenting its own unique tension against other alliance members. And that's it for this week's episode. Follow me on Instagram at Brief Before Impact. I hope you are picking up what I'm putting down. I am Matt Parker. This is Brief Before Impact.